educational technology that is designed with the brain in mind can be a catalyst in facilitating learning. On today's episode, Dr. Michelle Miller draws from her research in neuroscience and cognitive psychology and helps us teach more effectively using technology. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so happy today to be welcoming Dr. Michelle Miller to the show. She is uh, has an extensive area of research, which we'll be talking about today, but more recently is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Well, I have to tell you, I, I mentioned to you before we press the record button that one of our former guests, Dr. James Lang, had recommended your book on Twitter. And I went over and I read this description. I want to read it to the listeners real quick. For the internet generation, educational technology designed with the brain in mind offers a natural pathway to the pleasures and rewards of deep learning. Drawing on neuroscience and cognitive psychology, Dr. Michelle Miller shows how attention, memory, critical thinking, and analytical reasoning can be enhanced through technology-aided approaches. And I instantly went, click to buy, one click to buy is all that it took. (laughs) And I'm just so thrilled that you've agreed to join me to expose even more people to your work. Tell me, how did you get interested in writing a book about this? I know it somewhat connects with your research, Uh but was also somewhat a new path. Well, um, so, you know, from my earliest time in graduate school, um, and really going back to an undergraduate, um, my, my first academic love was cognitive psychology. So that's the um, area of psychology that deals with kind of the thinking and reasoning side of human behavior and thought processes. And it also crosses over fairly heavily, especially these days, into the neurosciences. So um, I was just fascinated with questions about, you know, how do we use our memory resources to process information. Um, And the deeper you get into this, the more you realize that it's just astonishing that we can even follow a sentence, you know, access all the information, put it together in memory and compose a response, all that goes into that. And so I come to this with excitement and abiding love for the study of of human cognition and thought processes. Over the years, as I um, came to my current institution, Northern Arizona University, Of course, like with many faculty members, we start to marry that with teaching. So teaching becomes not a hypothetical, but a reality. Ever since I began studying cognitive psychology, we would say, we'd look in the textbooks and we'd look at the research and say, wow, there's all this material here that will help us learn better back when you're a student and then how to teach better. I mean, there are real decisions that we make and how to present information, how to set up learning activities, what to do and not to do. And the study of cognition can oftentimes help, you know, make, help us make that decision when we come to those crossroads. As I sank deeper and, you know, became more committed to my life as a teaching-oriented faculty member, I started getting more interested in, you know, how do we take some of this theoretical stuff 
and really make it a reality, you know, not just in my own teaching, but also flowing that out to other um, other teachers in the profession. It really became, began to um, strike me as well just how difficult this can be because I think, you know, as an insider in cognitive psychology, you kind of look at it and say, oh, here's what the research says. Well, I'll put this in a journal and now everybody will know what to do. It doesn't <laughs> happen that way. It doesn't work so, that way? <laughs> it does not work that way, astonishingly enough. Uh, that stuff tends to stay in the libraries. As I began, for example, to work with my graduate students, when I started teaching a, a teaching practicum course, I started putting together for them these little informal written pieces that would say, let me break down the research for you. Here's what you may have heard. Here's the grain of truth. Here's what's a total myth about human cognition. What does this actually tell us? Something, you know, things that we can concretely do in our classes. And I loved bouncing those ideas off my students. I finally got the courage to start formally putting those out there for other professors to read. Back in 2011, I, I published a piece in the journal College Teaching about just what memory research is and kind of catching people up to some recent developments in memory research. And I got more interest in that article and felt like I did more good for my profession than a lot of other things that I'd worked on. So I started to pursue that. The opportunity to put this book together uh, came up. We decided to even amplify the technology focus because, of course, in teaching these days, how do you talk about it without talking about technology? And that's where the book came from. There is such this debate about all the potential evils and downsides to the technology. And so well, I think it's helpful just to start out with what does effective teaching mean to you? How do, what, yeah. what does that term even mean to you before you even get into, okay, does technology enhance or hinder learning? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's one that, you know, we should probably ask ourselves every day when we sit down to that computer. Before yeah. we ask, start answering the email, we should ask ourselves this question. My answer, I guess, really filters through that disciplinary training, again, as a cognitive neuroscientist and cognitive psychologist. So when I think, I think learning, I think becoming an expert in a discipline, that journey from novice to expert is something that we see a lot of people talking more and more about today. I really do think of building um, a knowledge base in, in, the, in the mind and in the brain about one's area of study. And that means, of course, not just the big old index file of facts, which is, after all, not how human memory works, but on that rich, interconnected, sometimes very messy um, network of all the things we, we know and all the things we've heard and all the things that we believe about um, our given area of study. And it also means, of course, the thinking side as well. It means having the skills, not just the knowledge, but the skills that we can sit down and do. Can I actually not just, you know, rattle off facts about how to, say, set up an experiment, but can I actually go into a lab and effectively do that? Do I have enough of a conceptual grasp to do it in different ways in different environments? So it means practicing and mastering and extending those skills. And it means having a conceptual grasp of, you know, the underlying principle. So do I, you know, not just uh, am I able to go in and run that t-test on my data or crunch the numbers, but do I know what it's doing? Do I have that as well? I guess you know, running through this as well is is that motivation piece. So, you know, while I come to this um, from the cognitive side, I think we increasingly realize that you can't separate, you know, motivation, emotion, and, and cognition. We used to think of them like oil and water. They don't mix. You can shake mm -hmm. them up, but they don't mix. But really, these two things in the human mind really complement one another. So when we talk about teaching and learning, you have to talk about, you know, why the students are there, 
We have to talk about developing their commitment to what they're doing and that intrinsic motivation, which we're all after in the classroom. Those are the things that come to the top of my mind when I think about what's effective with teaching. It's so fun to hear you talk about as you put your professional lens on it. So when we add now technology into the picture, what does using technology to teach effectively look like to you? Right. So, and I'm, I'm going to do something you shouldn't do, which I'm going to take a negative uh, twist on that question first. Is I think that, you know, I'm not the first to point this out, but it has to be said what not to do is to take the gadget driven approach. We all know we shouldn't do it. And, you know, it's, it's a very easy trap to fall into. So by gadget driven approach, I mean, you know, oh, I just picked up a flyer at the vendor booth about this new widget that does this thing, you know, or here's a drop into BB Learn, uh, Blackboard Learn, or uh, here's this tool that my, um, that my school just purchased and they want to see people using it. You know, every now and again, experimenting with a gadget can give us some ideas. It's true. But that is not the way to come in. You know, not to come in and just say, well, I want to do blended learning, you know, where we are going to, you know, or flip the classroom. So let's run around and figure out uh, how to put some things online and then bring the students in. It has to be goal-driven. So when I think effectively using technology, I I think of starting with those same principles and working backwards from there. What do I want my students to be able to do when they leave this class that they couldn't do before? How should this course change them? What mental activities are they going to need to engage in in order for that to happen? And then I, then I find a tool to do that. There are a lot of different avenues, but some of our greatest hits as applied psychologists are things like repeated testing. Having students effortfully recall the knowledge that we need them to master, that's really good. And you know, you can do that without technology, but boy, is that difficult to do. And you can't do things like have an adaptive quizzing system Mm -hmm. that's going to pick certain questions and not others based on the prior responses. It's just not feasible. Using technology to elicit the kinds of mental activities and the good use of time that we know as experts is going to pay off, that's what good use of technology means. It's not about this tool, that system, what platform. I I, I really just, that's uh, my belief about the technology. So in this case, you're talking about I believe the phrase is interlaced recall. So the recall you described, I need to be drawing, getting my brain to work to recall the information, but also not have it be only from this chapter where Mm -hmm. we want to be drawing from across multiple things that have been addressed in the class so far. And so there aren't, it sounds like you're going to, you're not going to rattle off. Here's my three favorite tools that do that. (laughs) But if we were going to evaluate an online Mm -hmm. tool, we'd be looking for, Mm -hmm. does it allow for that interlaced recall? Does it allow for the, and and is there anything in terms of the types of questions that you look for when you're, when you're looking at a tool? Well, yes. And, and, you know, just to kind of reflect on what you just said, too, I mean, you're really talking about the affordances of, of different technologies. Any technology you have, whether it's a pencil or a learning management system, they all, you know, there's, there's behaviors and ways of interacting with that tool that it encourages and others that it discourages. So, yeah, when we look at these tools, we should ask things like uh, the interleaved learning. And, and by the way, too, the interleaved learning is such a neat one. And that is, that is the principle that you should kind of mix up the different topics, you know. So instead of saying, oh, I'm going to teach my students about this statistical test and then we'll be done and move on, you, you have to mix it up. The crazy thing about that is the students themselves will push back against that because it feels harder. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, why is this so confusing? You know, well, this class is all disorganized. 
But we know from a memory standpoint that that really, really helps. Certain kinds of questions, you know, what I've come to call the big three of applied memory findings, the big three findings, that's the testing effect, the interleaving effect, and the spacing effect. All those three are really what we call robust, it means that they're not these kind of precious things that, you know, oh my gosh, you have to set things up exactly right for them to work. They're kind of bomb-proof. There's a good amount of research showing that things like interleaving and having lots of opportunities to, to self-quiz and, and take practice tests, those tend to work even when the, you've got like multiple choice questions, which are not anybody's favorite, but even with those, it, they tend to work. Now, if you can manage something like, say, a short answer question, or questions also where students explain why they gave the answer they gave, those are advantageous. But if those are just not practical for whatever reason, uh, technological, logistical, class size, I hope that faculty aren't scared off from trying something like it. You know what I mean? One of the recommendations you had that in your book, that forgive me if I don't phrase it right, but you'll fix uh-huh. me, you'll set me straight, was where in the learning management system, if you have the quiz in there, to have it be that short answer or, or, or fill in the blank mm-hmm. and have it where it auto grades it yeah. if they got it right, but if they get it wrong, where you could have the chance to go in and evaluate that yourself. And I thought, I really appreciated that because it was still creating that learning, but at the same time being realistic to the pressures of having so many students in a class and, and that kind of thing. So it, that was that was a, a eye-opening for me to go in and think about how I might adapt my quizzes to have there be, I still think, like you said, the true-false multiple choice, they can work, but some of these others could be richer to, to, to yeah. solidify that recall, but then to also still have that efficiency, whereas, hey, if they answer these five words, but then if they answer this, mm-hmm. I can go in and see, well, was that a synonym or essentially the same answer? I really like that technique. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And, and you know, it, it's interesting to, to, in a way, we're seeing kind of a shift in mindset. I know my mindset shifted a lot um, to say, you know, it, it's the doing of the question. It's the answering of the question that's producing so much of the benefit. And I think a lot of us, especially if we went to grad school a while ago, we're really focused on, is this correct? And is it correct in every nuance? And it's not that we want to reinforce students for wrong answers and let them, you know, walk along thinking that it's right. But, you know, thinking of these tests as formative learning activities. Yeah, maybe there's, you know, five different options that they could fill in that, yeah, now I don't have to sweat. I don't have to have a discussion with them about this particular question. Have the computer do what computers are good at, which is, you know, rote sorting, and just show me the ones that that are really a problem. And, And in my experience, when I've tried this technique, yeah, a lot of the time you've got a misspelling or you've got something that was fine but I didn't think of. You press a button, you give them credit, and if not, then then uh, you figure out whether you want to give some kind of feedback or not on that. So. Do the computers or do does the internet change our brains? Oh, well, I'm going to give you such a weasel answer here. The answer is yes, and so does everything else that you remember mm-hmm. <laughs> ever using or doing. That's such the the problem question for cognitive psychologists. And it is one where we clearly should be weighing in because this is this is on people's minds. You know, we laugh about it, but it is an important question. And I think for many people, maybe from outside the field, they get a, you know, weird feeling. We think, oh, this thing is going in my brain and, and rewiring me. And pragmatically for, for faculty who are going out, I'm going, I'm going to set up this great learning activity and I'm going to have this thing on students' mobiles who all connect. And if in the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, am I kind of advancing something that's negative and bad, you know, should I be getting technology out of students' lives instead? 
that's that's maybe going to be a real difficulty. So I had people ask me that with in in some sincerity. You know, I get pulled aside at cocktail parties. <laughs> the internet, we we created it for ourselves, and we made it to be to appeal to many of our human instincts and and our human wants and desires. It satisfies our curiosity. I mean, it puts us in touch with each other like nothing before. And we are a hyper social species. So that that stuff is is like catnip for people. You know, other people. <laughs> so of course it does all these incredibly compelling things for us. And that's what your brain is evolved to do is is to wire itself around compelling, important things in your environment. The catch is that there's really no reason to believe that it does it to any greater degree than, say, learning to read. I mean, that that's one that we know actually physically rewires parts of your brain together that were never intended to go together. Yet we don't really feel creeped out by books the way we do by the internet. Something like learning to drive a car or play a musical instrument. We know that learning to speak multiple languages rewires your brain. And yet I think we recognize there that it's that it's a positive development, not a negative development. That's uh, <laughs> that's my oftentimes very puzzled take on, you know, this this uh, idea that's playing out in the popular culture that the Internet is negative And part of why is the effect on the brain. You mentioned that we are wired to be social, yet we hear a lot in the popular media that social networks are making our students actually less social and that mm. they're they're all going out on dates or going <laughs> hanging out with friends and, and just have a phone in front of them instead of actually making those yeah. personal connections. Are social networks making our students less social? I think I'd have to punt that particular question to the sociologists, mm. um, not being, you know, the, the scholar of exactly how students spend their time. I think I have the same informal observations as a lot of other people do. But I think, too, though, we have to keep uh, front of mind that another human quirk is our uh, tendency to really stereotype and put people in, in uh, kind of pigeonhole them. And we do have to realize that, that many students are not enamored with technology. Even though some of them are using it, some of them are grudging users of the of the technology. They may have that phone, they may be poking away at it because it, it gets them things that they need to get done in their lives or that they want to get done in their lives. But if you actually sit down and ask them, as I've done with some of my students, they say, you know, I, yeah, th- th- these things are a distraction. I, I've had a few confess to me that their phone was taken away or they, it broke for a couple of days and they actually felt a little bit relieved. So I think there's a real spectrum that's going on out there. As far as Facebook and its uh, its cousins in general, there is really interesting research that is developing over in the social psychology neighborhood. So social psychologists have really tackled this this question of how do social networks work. They 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 are doing a fantastic job. It is pretty recent, so I think like a lot of things, the jury really is still out on what are the farther reaching psychological and social impacts of social networking. But um, I think some of the the findings about social networking that are as important to faculty as, you know, the wider impact on student social lives is just how powerfully it interacts with our personality characteristics. So while I don't think the internet per se rewires us or reprograms us or maybe does all that much to us as a species, I, social networking is sort of a, a thing unto itself. It really tends to amplify certain social interactions and personality characteristics. They don't really change, but you'll find, you'd probably find, for example, that students who were Oh, kind of your more self-centered or classroom dominating in a face-to-face environment are going to be that same way in the social networking environment. But because of the massive connectivity, 
boy, misunderstandings and self-centered behavior really tend to blow up very quickly. But that's, I think, just the tip of the iceberg of all the neat things that that social psychologists are discovering about social networking per se. And it seems like a lot of the research is contradicting each other. And so we're still kind of early about what we're finding out. I mean, there's so many hard mm-hmm. variables there. It's hard to control <laughs> for them. I've read studies about Facebook makes you happier and then it yeah, makes you depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe yeah. it is like you're saying that amplification of if you were already happy, perhaps, perhaps yeah. you go out and see happy things. And if you were already tending toward yeah. depression, I don't know if we'll figure that out. Yeah. So the, you started to allude to this myth. You didn't use the word myth in the book, but of course that's how I interpreted it because I have my own biases, but the myth of the tech-savvy student. Ooh. Oh, yes. <laughs> right, the myth of the tech-savvy student. Um, and it's one of those funny myths that we, we all can rattle off all these examples why we shouldn't believe the myth, and yet sometimes we still walk around <laughs> propagating the myth. Props to my, to my fellow social scientists for really taking a lot of social impressions that we have and doing some good research, going out and just serving students about this. And, and going in, it might have seemed really obvious. I mean, what sort of a dumb study asked whether 18-year-olds like technology more than older people? Everybody knows they do. Well, guess what? <laughs> Quite a few of these surveys come out and, and systematically document that students don't feel comfortable using the technology and something that I think is really practical for us to keep in mind which is that students really do differentiate technology use. I think it's it's easy and it perhaps it's necessary for us to kind of lump all technology together you know your your tinder your social Facebook and that the learning management system that you're on and then that weird textbook site you're supposed to do we lump those all together but really when it plays out in students lives these are very, very different domains. Skills in one don't transfer into another. And what do you know, that really also lines up very well with what we learned, have learned time and again in applied cognitive science, which is that skills and abilities that we think will transfer from one domain just really don't transfer very well at all. So our minds are very context-based, you know. People who can fix their computers can't always fix their cars. People who can fix their toasters can't always fix a social relationship. It, you know, we see this play out in a lot of realms. And I think that this is a case of that. The student who is just fantastic at getting into Instagram or managing uh, you know, or figuring out the, the latest first-person shooter, you throw them into a learning management system and they don't know what to do and, and they may just give up. So I think that's the case. <laughs> it's segregated and very diverse. And when it comes to practical hands-on stuff, some studies have shown that the middle-aged students, your non-traditional students, actually come out ahead. And one of the things you talk about, I'm not sure if you'd categorize mm-hmm. it under motivation or just laying a foundation, but is mm-hmm. that importance of why is it we're going to use this tool? What's it going to do for mm-hmm. us? I, I like how you're distinguishing this from if it comes to Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel. I can recall very vividly uh-huh. being, I can't remember much about college, but I can remember <laughs> the, the spreadsheet made no sense to me. I didn't, I didn't understand why, why would you ever want to use something like this? And today I, I whip out the spreadsheet pretty, pretty frequently. So that's, that's, a, that's a helpful thing for us to think about laying that, yeah. that foundation. Yeah, and that's that's the case your brain is doing its job. Why on earth would your brain have ever been shaped by natural selection to hang on to the details of something that did not relate in any way to your life or your survival or your goals? All that stuff does is make it less likely that you'll find the information that you actually do need. But then when it's time, when we have a context, 
and an application to say, you know, oh my gosh, here's, here's, I need to get my grades in tomorrow. <laughs> all of a sudden, yeah, I, I need to know how to plug this formula in. It all clicks, doesn't it? It just, yeah. it all falls into place. <laughs> does memory matter in the internet age? And if it does, what should we be aware of when we build online courses? Mm-hmm. Well, I got to come down on the side of, of yes, yes, it really does. And, um, you know, there, uh, I'm, I'm not the only person who says this, that, yeah, we have access to information that is unprecedented. Yes, it's absolutely true that if I need to know what's the denominator and the formula for a t-test, I can just look that up. And it is true that we perhaps need to also be emphasizing how to select from among the many pieces of information that you can find. So the quality of searching rather than just, okay, not having to search in the first place. Expertise and knowledge just really cannot be fully separated. For example, to know how to solve a problem within a domain, to know, you know, if I've got a crying student in my office, what should I do next that's appropriate and that will be useful? That's a professional cognitive skill that I have developed. That is just going to tie into some knowledge. It's not all about my opinions or my ability to critically think or search for information. I need to, to know a few things, and part of that is, part of that is speed. You know, if the student's in crisis right now, he or she cannot really wait in the hall for 45 minutes while I page through some nice appropriate readings about student well-being and figure out some phone numbers. So it's partly simply the practicality of speed. And it's also to see the connections among different pieces of information. So it's still all kind of in the works, but I'll say that there is there's some interesting lines of research that are developing right now where cognitive scientists are showing, for example, in STEM education, that the more that you learn from a knowledge, uh, foundational knowledge basis, the better you can springboard and up into making things like inferences or drawing conclusions. It's a case where we're seeing that instead of competing with one another the way many of us learned, knowledge and critical thinking and higher thought processes complement one another very, very well. We're untangling exactly why and how that happens within the mind and the brain. But I feel really confident telling faculty that memorizing something is not always a dirty word. Yes, students have only limited time and effort. No, we don't want to just stop with disjointed facts. We need to tie them all together. But it is okay to expect your students to know off the top of their head, without the Google, without the smartphone, um, the the major things that they need to know in the in the topics that you're that you're teaching, and that sh- that will help them. That will help them become better consumers of new information. It will help them assimilate more information and so forth. Where does motivation come in for our students when we're uh, teaching them online? I'm glad you asked because this is one where. I really felt like I went outside of my comfort zone in reading and, and writing this book, coming to this from the cognitive side and where attention and how do we memorize and, you know, how does, the, how does knowledge complement higher thinking? The motivation and emotion side is kind of over there. So I just realized with online learning, you cannot talk about one without the other because this is one big difference, I think, um, practically speaking, with online learning activities versus the face-to-face ones. With the face-to-face courses, I think we all develop some effective uh, strategies just to survive, to get students motivated. And I mean no disrespect to those. These are really important skills. So I can use my enthusiasm. I can use my personal presence. I can look at their faces. 
figure out, you know, when are they flagging? When are they feeling discouraged? When are they eating up this information? I don't have that in an online environment. And students don't have that familiar old, you know, maybe carried over from high school structure of, okay, here's the class time. And if I show up, something good will happen. Online, you can just not turn the computer on. So procrastination is a huge problem. You know, it's not like I'm really missing class, which is a, students do, but which is a very glaring example, which we all know, oh, okay, something is very wrong here. If I just don't, you know, just skip the computer and conveniently forget for a few days, well, now I'm really behind. And, of course, online, one thing technology does do is provide just distraction after distraction. So if I'm not feeling super motivated, if I'm feeling put off in any way by that online course, it's only going to be that much more tempting for me to click over to Instagram, Facebook, my shopping, or, or anything like that. What I tried to do in the book is, is it can pick and choose from some of the very best, most up-to-date ideas that behavioral scientists have come up with to say what motivates people, how do you get them moving, and to translate that into some online strategies. And just as a spoiler, it's not all about the points. So if you ask faculty, why do students, why, why would a student turn on their computer when they're tired and want to do something else, why would they do this and go into your course and say, well... They need it for their degree and it's required and there's points. It's like, that's not a reason. <laughs> you need a better reason than that. Try to, to talk about things like, of course, intrinsic motivation and how you highlight that, just even in the wording that you use with students of, you know, what brings you here? Or maybe you, you start off with a letter home um, assignment where you say, instead of lecturing students and saying, well, here's why you should care about this statistics class, you say, write an email home hypothetically to your relatives and say, hey, I'm taking this class and here's why I'm excited to do it and here's why it's important. Get them to say it. Things like mindset, that's important too. But most importantly, I, just, I think that any faculty who are going into any kind of online learning need to have a plan, just the same way that we now have a plan to have learning outcomes. And you, you wouldn't walk into the class and say, well, I don't know what we want to learn. You need to have a plan for how you're going to keep students motivated and discourage procrastination as much as possible. And part of that, too, is, is from the research I have seen, is blending mm -hmm. the synchronous and the asynchronous. Because when we have that synchronous, it's kind of like going to the gym. You're much more likely to go if you've got an appointment with your personal trainer, you've got your oh. exercise class, that kind of thing, because you've got that point oh. in time. And the same thing with the synchronous. There's a lot of research around. This is in the for-profit training in the corporate world, oh. but that you'll have a lot higher completion rates if there's a synchronous component to it. And from the research I've seen, it also crosses over into uh, education as well. So that's, that's one, one technique because it's a scheduled time, just like a class would be. So ah, but then, see, great point. We're, yeah. We've got to figure these things out as, as we go along a lot of the time. Yeah. So this is the point in the show where we each mm -hmm. make a recommendation. And as corny as this is, I want to make sure and, and just once again, say, get yeah. Michelle Miller's book. I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes. I mentioned to her before we started recording the show that it was just so difficult for me to try to get this in one interview because it's such a rich book and would be a wonderful tool for faculty to read together and discuss yeah. and, and share how they might benefit from her research. So thank you. And I'm going to recommend quickly a, a tool that will let people make fake Facebook pages. Speaking of social media, it's at classtools.net, and I will link to it in the show notes. And I'm teaching a business ethics class in the spring and have been so inspired by people like Michelle and James Lang, who we had on the, the show previously, to create some something different than 
your typical write a paper or do a test. And so I'm going to have students make a fake Facebook page around the Enron scandal. And I think that's going to be a, a fun tool. I just I just found out about the tool and, and put the two together. And as I've shared before, and, and Michelle cautioned us against this, I won't be doing too many new adoptions of technology. I'll just pick my one thing for the spring and not get too carried away because that's where we we start to get overwhelmed with the technology and then it doesn't help us achieve our goals. So Michelle, what do you have to recommend for us today? Oh gosh, that's terrible because I can't pick just one. <laughs> oh, well, I picked I, I picked two, so go for, for it. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am a huge consumer of um, I just love the latest new, um, any kind of nonfiction, and I just love it also when a psychologist, more accomplished than myself, can translate uh, their works into um, these, these books that are also great reads. I'll lead with one that is really recent and I had a good time with, and especially if you read The Shallows. I think that this, this book was almost like a counterpoint to it, and it, he, this is not a psychologist, this is a journalist, but Clive Thompson's Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better, he actually does not talk much about online learning, which I was both relieved and surprised to see. Huh. But, you know, some really neat stuff about um, changes on the on the social level and kind of going beyond the, just the American context and looking worldwide. So that was amazing. Um, I always have to recommend The Invisible Gorilla by Christopher Chabriz. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, and Dan Simon, two brilliantly accomplished visual attention researchers who talk about, you know, what we do and don't see in our everyday lives. And I reference that in a ton of my teaching about attention. Anything by James Lang, of course, Cheating Lessons. If you haven't seen Cheating Lessons, go ahead and run out and get that. I, I feel about that, that book the way that you, you've praised mine. So I did want to put that out as well. And lastly, Scarcity is another book by a behavioral economist and a psychologist looking at why we make some of the d- dumb decisions that we do in everyday lives, in our everyday lives. I broke your rules. I picked, uh, what was that, three or four, but, <laughs> but hey. <laughs> I uh, loved I, it. I tend to believe what Mae West said, uh, too much of a good thing is wonderful. So. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it, and my, my reading list is going to get even longer, but I really, ah. all of those sound so good. I appreciate the recommendations. Yeah. And thank you so much for accepting the invitation to come on Teaching in Higher Ed and just being willing to share your new book mm-hmm. with us and, and all of your expertise. Oh, thank you as well. It's been, it's been wonderful. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. That was episode 26, by the way, which you can reach all the great links at teachinginhighered.com slash 26, including the recommendations that Michelle had at the end of the show. And if you have any feedback on teaching in higher ed in general, I would welcome that. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. If you'd like to subscribe to our weekly email, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. It only comes out once a week and has automatically in your inbox the podcast notes with all the links included and a weekly article on teaching or productivity. You also receive the Ed Tech Essentials Guide when you subscribe. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you on the next show.